You are listening to Scotland's Ear to the Ground, the podcast that brings you interviews with Scotland's finest composers. Your hosts are Aileen Sweeney and Ben Eames. Gemma McGregor is a freelance composer, performer and curator from Orkney, whose music has been described as polystylistic whilst crossing the boundaries of musical genres. Gemma has been writing music with a sense of place, either by referencing sounds from the environment, history or dialect poetry. Gemma plays Orkney traditional music and has researched its links with Norwegian music. Much of her music contains references to speech, rhythms and a strong connection to Norn, the lost language of Orkney. Hello, how are you doing? Very well. It's nice to catch you while you're in Glasgow, briefly. <laughs> um, so as I said, your music has been described as polystylistic. First off, could you give us a quick overview of what this term means in practice and then how you utilise it yourself in your own music? Well, it was a reaction to um, modernism in the 50s. So starting really from the 60s, composers started to embrace sounds from um, other cultures and going back to tonality, which had been a definite no-no while the 50s composers were on the go. And the Beatles had a big influence as well because their music includes just about everything from psychedelic rock to folk ballads. And so lots of composers were thinking, oh, well, I can introduce things into my music which could be world music or sounds from the environment. And then when I started to learn from Peter Maxwell Davis, he was already doing that. He was using plain song in his music and he saw no problem at all with having a chunk of something that was quite atonal and dissonant and then a chunk of um, music referencing sounds from other times. And then in more recent years, I've been influenced by Alfred Schnitke, who was a Russian composer, but he had a very mixed heritage. And so he included lots of other styles of music right in the middle of his Russian music. So how do you use polystylism in your music? Is it, is it more intuitive or are you like, oh, I really want to mash Baroque and pop together? You know, how, how does it work for you? Most of my music is a depiction of consciousness in, in some shape or form. And so I've done things like gone to a very special place, which, of course, Orkney is full of, mm. and I've tried to mix up my reaction to the place, which is in the present, with my emotions, with history, with the sounds that I'm hearing right then and there. So it, it's kind of a metaphor for the experience of being, if that makes sense. So there might be some bird calls or some sounds of the sea mixed in with a flash of something that I've read in the Orkney Inga saga, which is extremely old, um, mixed in with um, a connection with Orkney, which could be traditional music, it could be some speech rhythms. And I see that as an enormous mosaic of different sounds and references. So for me, that's got a lot of personal meaning and might be connected with an experience that I've had. But for the listener, it means they attach their own meaning to all those symbols and they can take a journey through that sound. 
So being from Orkney, you're the first islander we've had on the podcast. Um, we're interested in how the Arcadian culture and landscape influences your music. Well, I first knew about Orkney when I met um, Maxwell Davies when he was director of the Dartington Summer School. And I spent quite a lot of time with him. And I think the first piece I went to that referenced Orkney was the Martyrdom of St Magnus, which is a chamber opera. And he wrote the text for that. He was very influenced by George Mackay Brown, the poet. But the text is drawn from the Orkney Younger Saga. And I got fascinated with this mix of past and present and the sounds from Orkney. And then when I found out that the Orcadian culture is basically Viking, it's not Scottish, I, I got fascinated by a whole load of music and art forms that really are the heritage of Norway and the Vikings and Iceland and the sounds of their traditional music. And then I thought, well, I'm living in Orkney. I've been there 22 years. I better learn some traditional music. So I collected fiddle tunes and um, learned to play them on the flute, the wooden flute. And not surprisingly, those tunes and intervals crept into my music. <laughs> and I think as a composer, the most fascinating sound is if you're going to be very technical, they're not major or minor, they're something else. So I explored the tunings of ancient Viking music and Hardanger fiddle, which is from Norway, and thought, can I create some music which is relatively tonal, but is this other mode, it's not major or minor. Could you maybe just give a wee insight into the Orkney Inga saga? Because that's obviously quite important to you in your work. Some people might not be aware what that is. But it's quite like Beowulf, and um, that's a Saxon saga. And the Orkney Inga saga is, is a telling of the Earls of Orkney as far back as anyone could remember. It would have been sung rather than written down initially, so we don't really know how old it is. It's very influenced by Icelandic sagas um, because those a lot of the Vikings would have come from Iceland and they'd have brought all their stories with them. And in Orkney, probably because Orkney was turning over to Christian belief very slowly, uh, they sort of latched on to this martyrdom of St Magnus story because it sort of parallels the, the Christ story. Um, so when Magnus, apparently when he was 18, said to his um, chief earl in the middle of a battle in the Menai Straits in Anglesey, uh, I'm a pacifist. <laughs> <laughs> I am a pacifist. I'm not going to fight anymore. And so the story goes. Um, he the, the arrows were flying all around him and he left the Viking ship that was in a battle and swam ashore and disappeared. So I suppose he knew they weren't going to be very pleased. <laughs> <laughs> and then he was tricked by... There was two rulers, him and his cousin, and the people thought this is um, not a healthy situation, having a divided rule... So the other cousin was a nasty chap, Hakon, and he called Magnus for a peace treaty to the island of Egglesey and said, just bring two ships and we'll, we'll draw up a peace treaty. And poor Magnus got there and it was all a trick. Oopsies. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned that you received lessons in mentoring from Peter Maxwell Davis. You share an interest not only in the, the polystylism, but he was also interested in Orkney's culture and traditions how has he specifically sort of influenced you as a composer? His was the first music that I heard that could move very quickly from one style to another. 
and embrace lots of styles of music, but also lots of references. And that was a good thing. It was a rich thing. Instead of being the sort of composition teacher who said, have you decided your style? Have you decided your genre? And of course, it's totally common now, but he was one of the first people to think that that was a strength rather than a weakness. Mm -hmm. And a big influence on me was playing the flute in a performance of Eight Songs for a Mad King, which is a tremendously fun music theatre piece where the male singer is dressed as George III who kept pet birds and he loved their music and he taught them songs, but poor man went mad. So this theatre piece is about the disintegration of his mind and the, I think it's a sextet, the players all around him, which could be depicted in a cage, it depends on on how um, inventive the director is. Um, But when I did it, the players were in a sort of frame and they semi-improvised and their music um, starts off quite like Handel, I suppose. Uh, baroque music style and then it gets more and more dissonant and crazy as he goes crazy and then he kills one of his birds which is very sad (laughs) but I liked the mix I liked the bits of history creeping into his piece um I suppose that was the start of me thinking yeah I could mix music up yeah and another influence on me was Japanese music because I learned the shakuhachi so initially it was oh I'm not sure I can marry 20th century music with um, Zen and the Shakuhachi. But I saw what he'd done and I thought, yes, it might not end up sounding like Shakuhachi music, which is also very old. It's about a 1,000 years old. But I can take elements from it and mix it with my music. Did you have to learn the the notation for that instrument? I, I did, and it's a very curious notation. Some of the very old pieces... They don't really indicate rhythm, but it's handwritten in ink and you can tell from the boldness of some of the characters for the tones um, what you can sort of guess. You have to learn from your teacher, you have to learn by ear, in other words. The notation is really just a memory aid and there's some characters that are really odd. Like one character is usually at the end of a piece and it says, do whatever is right in this moment. (laughs) (laughs) Where did you get... Uh, into into that who who was teaching up in Orkney the Shakuhachi (laughs) this was when I was an undergraduate and it was Yoshikazu Yamoto and he I think he was the first um, Japanese player to come to the UK to teach and it was a kind of experiment to say could someone who's not immersed in this culture um, learn an instrument and I think possibly I was the first woman to play it as well because it was a samurai instrument. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I was um, very privileged to to learn with him and be his apprentice for a while. Yeah. And did you master it? <laughs> I did. It was yes. f- physically incredibly demanding. It takes a lot of air. It's an open-ended bamboo tube, which is quite heavy. Mm. Um, so, does it, does it go long ways like that or is it more like a flute? It's long ways and you blow across the top of it like blowing across the top of a bottle. Right. Mm. Mm-hmm. So it takes far more air than the flute. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Should have brought it. Given us a rendition. So we're going to listen to one of your chamber works, A Slaughter of Ravens. Could you tell us a little bit more about this piece before we listen? This one is taken from the Orkney Inga saga as well, although it's a different story. 
And it started with me standing in the grounds of the, the Bishop's Palace, which is right next to St Magda's Cathedral in Kirkhall. And this is the oldest domestic building in Scotland, um, built in the 12th century for the bishop to live next to the cathedral. And it's a quite, well, it's a ruin, but it's, it would have been a very impressive, large um, redstone building. And I was standing there and there's huge sycamore trees there and there were some ravens in the tree and I just listened to all these weird noises that they make. They do a sort of craw and a tock, tock, tock. Um, and they can learn to speak. People have taught them to speak. They're very intelligent. So I, I thought these were really creepy birds and it reminded me of this tale of Vikings having a banner with an image of a raven on it because it's a very powerful image. And they had them on their ships. And there was a, an earl who insisted that the standard bearer at the front of his soldiers would carry this banner. But there was a curse on the banner and the standard bearer always got killed.
So you've got a performance coming up this month. Carry His Relics has been performed as part of Nordic Viola's Sagas and Seascapes. Can you tell us a little bit about the project and how it came about? Writing the piece came about because there was a whole movement in Orkney to celebrate the 900th anniversary of Magnus Martyrdom, which was 1117. And they opened up the St Magnus Way, which had lain covered up by grass and stones and water for, I don't know how long, centuries probably. But um, footpaths were built, five joined-up footpaths, from Egglesey, where he was killed, to Bursey, where he was buried, and then to Kirkwall, where his relics were brought, and then to the cathedral, where they, they had their final resting place. And when the, the way was completed, it took a lot of work. There was huge celebrations in Orkney and they decided there would be the very first walk of the first section, not the whole thing, because it's 58 miles long. But the first section, I went to that day and about 100 people walked the first part of St Magnus Way and it was a really wonderful occasion to think about these um, first pilgrims doing this journey by the sea, most of it's by the coast. And there are these stones called Mansi stones that are about um, three foot high and it's where they would have rested the coffin um, while they carried the relics and maybe had a little picnic while they had their rest. <laughs> so there was some singing. These hundred people were, were walking this path and just thinking about years and years' worth of history. And it was a really lovely occasion with birds flying everywhere and I just thought I want to write a piece of music that sounds like that. <laughs> and the piece began. <laughs> mm. Um, the bird noises are um, copying directly mostly the sounds of gulls because um, white mars they're called in Orkney. The white mars are everywhere and you just hear them constantly and quite often the start of their cry is a tritone. And I really like that sound of um, grace notes that are a tritone followed by flutter tongue.
So where and when can people find Nordic Viola's Sagas and Seascapes? It's part of the Edinburgh Fringe and it's going to be at the Scottish Storytelling Centre on the 15th, 16th and 17th of August at 8.30 and includes um, some film and some live music. And then on the 18th of August, there's an online version at 7 o'clock and you'll find that on either the Nordic Viola or the Scottish Storytelling Centre websites. And that's going to be the film followed by a question and answer with the three composers that are featured. So let's talk about some of your vocal and choral work. Has the Orkney Inga saga had the same influence over these works as your chamber music? Some of my choral work's been connected with the story of St Magnus or other saints as well. But the opera that I wrote for this 900th celebration of the, the martyrdom was called The Story of Magnus Erlinson, and it was commissioned by St. Magnus International Festival. And it was quite a big piece. It was uh, 10 soloists, double chorus, organ, ensemble, and it was in St. Magnus Cathedral. And I thought, well, the music should reference St. Magnus and his time. So it had some of these Viking sounds in it, but it also quoted the plain chant associated with St. Magnus, which was lost for many years. But myself and another um, person who's interested in the story have been collecting the plain chant over the years, including the Orkney anthem. And so some of that music did appear in that choral work. Now when you say people have been collecting the plain song, where do they find them? Like, where do they crop up when these things have been, like, missing and then they they find them? Where where do they find them? (laughs) (laughs) Usually it's when they've been quoted in another publication. And if you see a name and you think that name doesn't really fit with the South of England, um, then you think, oh, actually, they're just quoting it. Um, So partly that way and partly if you're a musician and you start to know the sort of intervals that the Orkney plain chant used, um, you can recognise the style of, of writing and think, oh, I think that could be an Orkney one, which, of course, is related to the Norwegian style. And then there's been other quite unusual episodes of finding them in a leaf of a book. That's a common one. Um, but one was the Orkney anthem, which is in thirds, and all the history books said that wasn't invented then. Um, but then somebody in Sweden found an orig- well, a 13th century manuscript written in thirds, and so it disproved all the theories and proved that Orkney was ahead of its time. So it's like proper detective work, like looking for clues and stuff. That's Yes, that's right. And I've been conducting the Orkney Scholar, which hasn't got resurrected post-lockdown, but I hope it will. Mm-hmm. And that's a group of men who've been singing these plain chants, and I think actually singing them is also a good way of researching what they are and what purpose they served and why they're different to Scottish and English music. Mm. So after the the premiere of the opera, more and more commissions for choral work were coming through and this led to you writing the piece Love Was His Meaning. Could you tell us a little bit about that? That was commissioned by a group called Multitude of Voices and for this event they were promoting the music of women composers and they commissioned four anthems by four different women uh, based on the life of St Julian of Norwich, who in fact was a woman, and she was an anchorite, and she wrote um, 
a description of her visions. So I think she had 16 visions and they gave us just tiny chunks of words to set. And the challenge for me was how could I make a piece that was interesting, even though it just had three lines of words. And I wrote a piece for um, Women's Chorus, which was soprano, alto, alto, but included the harp and a solo soprano. Yeah, it's a lovely piece. And it's been published since. Yes, it was published in an anthology of sacred music by women composers by this group, Multitude of Voices. And I was just at University of Oxford last week hearing another performance of it by Somerville College Choir.
So have you got anything else coming up you'd like to plug? Uh, the Edinburgh Quartet. They've commissioned a quartet called Through All the Heavens of Ice and they're going to play that and a couple of other pieces on November 22nd. Pop that in the diary, everyone. Mm. <laughs> I've got a film as well. Can I plug that? Oh, of course. <laughs> I'm currently um, working on some music for a, a short film. It's an ARC-funded project um, called Beside the Ocean of Time. And this project was perfect for me because it's um, scenes of Orkney coastline and water. Um, so I'm going to finish that music and get it recorded. When's that coming out? I don't know yet. <laughs> <laughs> so to play you out, we're going to hear Joy for solo viola, performed by Catherine Wren. Can you tell us a bit about the piece before we listen? I was working with a group called Illuminate um, for about three years, and they promote music by women composers. And they had commissioned four pieces for me, and I played the flute with them on three tours. And I'd written some pretty heavy going music and on the fourth commission I thought oh, I think I'm going to write something a bit more cheerful and it was for solo violin originally and it was performed in London by a violinist called Sabina Vertozu and I based it on the sound of the Norwegian Hardanger fiddle which has I think 11 different tunings so I chose a really bright cheery um, I think a lot of fourths in it tuning and used lots of double stopping, and that was to imitate the sound of the drone notes. There are the four strings on top of the hardanger, but there is, I think it varies, but maybe 16 or so strings that are, are fairly loose and they lie underneath, and they just shake while you're playing the top strings and make this sort of constant drone noise. So Joy was partly to be incredibly um, celebratory and happy, and partly to imitate this sound of the hardanger fiddle. It's really interesting. When I listened to it yesterday, I, th I think it's just because I associate that double stop across four strings with the Bach Chaconne. And it, it, for me, it was quite interesting because that's quite a, that's a very sombre piece. Um, but your piece starts with like a really bright double stop. And I was like, is that some sort of allusion to the Bach or was it just, you know, just a double stop? <laughs> No, you're absolutely right. The the Chaconne is one of my favourite pieces, oh. but I thought, could I make a happy version of the Bach Chaconne? You've got good ears, oh, Ben. You've excellent. got good ears. <laughs> <laughs> um, fantastic. Is it Catherine playing on this recording? Yes, th yeah. this piece has had quite a life because Catherine loved it and said, make me a viola version. Um, someone else said, make me a cello version. Oh, really? And wow. And yet to happen is a, um, a viol version. I think it's viol. We're going to say double um, bass. <laughs> <laughs> viola de gamba. I haven't done that one yet. Yeah, just wait for the invitation. <laughs> um, in terms of the, so the, the, the modes that are used in Norwegian folk music, what's happening musically there? Because it is a kind of strange it's really sound. sound. It's a very yeah. distinct sound, and I'd, I'd be interested just to know how does it work. <laughs> well, my theory is that it's based on intervals rather than scales. Yep. So um, we're very much taught, even if you're not using major minor, even if you're writing serial music, that there's this pattern of notes and you go up them and you go down them and you invert them, and there's often a tonic. So my theory about the Norwegian music and probably older music as well is that it acts on intervals and patterns, not on scales. 
So we tend to listen to it with our ear tuned to scale. We say, oh, it's Dorian, or oh, it's natural minor, or whatever. But that's not how they wrote it. They're thinking more like if there's a cell of, um, for example, a fourth and then a third, it's a pattern that you can repeat all over the place. And if you do that, you end up with the occasional tritone or a note that is different. And you hear that, oh, it's a different sound. But in fact, it never did come from a scale. And the way I use that is connected with something that James Macmillan taught me, which was to use a generative cell. So it's a bit like having a motif, but it's more complicated because you, you have this thing, which again could be three notes, and you play around with it all over the place. So you're not having a, a theme and developing it. You're having some material like a building block, and this building block jumps all over the place. 